1: Pastor Keith Crosby of Hillside Church.
2: Once a month we celebrate the Lord's passion, and His resurrection, and His return. Now that brings us to question number 11. How do we practice communion? And what I mean by this is open or closed. There are some groups who say, if you're not a part of our group, our sect, you cannot participate in the Lord's table at our church. That's a closed communion. We here at Hillside practice open communion because it's the Lord's table, not Hillside's table. I can
0: see the promised land Though there's pain within the plan There is victory in the end Your love is my battle cry The answer for all my life Every dragon will fall
1: With Pastor Keith Crosby, Senior Pastor of Hillside Church in San Jose, California. We are so delighted that you've chosen to spend time with us today studying God's Word. And as we always do, we would encourage you to follow along with us in your Bibles if you can. On today's broadcast, we're continuing with our series entitled Nuts and Bolts. And today we'll be hearing part two of Pastor Keith's message on church ordinances. A message entitled the nuts and bolts of baptism and communion. So if you have your Bibles, please return with us today to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Now here's Pastor Keith with today's study.
2: That's why at this church we practice believers' baptism. Don't miss the sequence there. Tell them about Jesus, baptize them, train them. In all cases in the New Testament, in the Bible, baptism follows conversion. Where do we see that? Look at Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 souls were added to the number that day. Acts 8, 12, and 13, and also 35 and 36. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. Look at uh, uh, Acts 8, 35 to 38. Philip the evangelist, he keeps showing up here, leading people to Christ. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus Christ. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, this is the story of the baptism, the salvation and baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch." government official. He commanded the chariot to stop, and he he said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and he baptized him. He baptized him after his belief in Christ. That's who gets baptized, believers. Believers are baptized. Now, today, uh, in some of the more reformed circles, You have something where they're trying to repackage infant baptism as household baptism. And they try to find a place in the Bible that says something to the effect that, oh, he and his whole household were baptized. And they said, so therefore, it must be okay to baptize infants. You have to know where infant baptism came from. You know, after the city of Rome fell and the the hordes overran Rome, uh, Rome and there was high infant mortality rates and people became less literate even the clergy became less literate all kind of old wives tales came up about babies and stuff and they were taught I remember John Huss who was uh, uh, a saint who was uh, actually martyred years a uh, long time ago he had to put down people being taught he had to resist people being taught that fireflies were the unbaptized souls of infants looking for a place to go and it's in that backdrop that infant baptism came into being. Out of kind of an ignorance, it, got, it, it was sort of absorbed into the church and things like that. And you had things like limbo, which everybody's embarrassed about today in some circles, and rightly so. And, but the bottom line is there is no such thing as infant baptism. It, there, it, it's never found anywhere in the Bible. It's tradition, and some traditions aren't good tradition. And then you find people trying to say, well, it's household baptism. But let's look at that. Let's look at a household baptism in the New Testament. Acts 16, 30 to 35, the Philippian jailer. We know the story. Paul was in jail. He leads this man to Christ. It says, then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. So he's saying, you and your whole household believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. He's not saying, if you are saved, your whole household will be saved. No one would make that kind of argument, right? And it says in verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he, and he was baptized at once, he and his all, all his whole family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And they rejoiced with his entire household that he had believed in God. The whole household came to Christ and the whole household was baptized. It's not this guy got saved and everybody in his house was baptized, including Bambinas and Bambinos, okay? That's, you can't make that case here. And in every case in the New Testament, baptism follows conversion. And so we baptize only believers here. We do not recognize a baptism of an unbeliever, all right? goes back to Matthew 28, 18 through 20 go make disciples, baptize those disciples in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit, and then train them. Can you imagine training an infant? I mean, really? And that does come later when they get a little older, but it's not that kind of training, right? So, you know, people in different groups and traditions try to argue this, and I'm not here trying to rain on your parade. I'm just telling you what the Bible clearly, unmistakably indicates. And you may... I mean, when I, I was baptized as an infant, I was confirmed at the age of 12. That was the tradition I came out of. And then when I came to Christ, I was baptized as a believer. The Bible teaches believers baptism. You know, we're not falling back into superstition here. We are trying to stay with the Bible. And that's hard sometimes because it militates against what we've become comfortable with in the past. How do we baptize? That's question number six. How do we baptize? What does the Bible indicate? How do we baptize? Again, Philip, the evangelist, leading this man to Christ. What does it say? They both went down into the water, and he baptized them. Now, look what happens here. Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scriptures, he told the good news about Jesus Christ, and they were going along the road, and they came to some water, and the eunuch said, "'See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized?' And he commanded the chariot to stop, and he was baptized. He went down into the water and was baptized. Now, let's think through that, all right? This eunuch is a part of a caravan coming from Ethiopia or Cush to Jerusalem and going to head back. Do you think that that caravan traveled without water through the desert, through the Palestinian desert? No. If he had needed to be sprinkled, you just take the water you've got in your canteen. I baptize you in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. But he said, look, here is water. Boom. There's a body of water. Let's go. What keeps me from being baptized? What's going on here? He's going down into the water so he can be put under the water, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. You can't get away from that. Look at Matthew 3:16 and 17. Jesus' own baptism. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were open for, to him. Now it doesn't he's not leaving the water, he's standing there. And the heavens are open. And John the Baptist saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. And the crowd heard this loud voice, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was baptized by immersion. Every instance in the, in the New Testament, there's always much water there. John 3.23. John, John the Baptist was baptizing in aeon because there was much water there. Why do you need a pile of water? If, you, if any of you have been to Europe and you've seen the old basilicas, You you realize that Ambrose baptized Augustine by immersion, right? Well, What happened is there was a loss of biblical literacy. There was a spreading of superstition and people were baptizing babies hoping that that would keep those little fireflies from being lost. And you just want to stay away from that. I mean, that's really... And you can imagine, I mean, ignorance, high infant mortality rates, things like that. But you know what? That's just really not part of what the Bible teaches. So remember... Baptism, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Let's talk about the word baptism, baptizo. Ever wonder where that word comes from? When they translated the King James and you had the, uh, you know, Henry VIII had brought the Church of England out of, out of control of Rome and everything. They had all these traditions. And when they were retranslating the Bible into English, they came to this word baptizo. And you know what? They just didn't want to deal with it. So they just tra- transliterated it into an English word. They anglicized it, Baptism. If you were to look up baptizo, it's used in accordance with the sinking of ships in secular Greek literature. It's used in accordance with drownings in secular Greek literature. And in in the New Testament, it speaks to people being baptized by immersion, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. It shows up 80 times in the New Testament. It always has to do with that. The word sprinkle is rantizo, That's a whole different word. And it's in the Greek language. Baptism meant to be sprinkled. They would have used the word rantizo. It shows up four times in the New Testament. Hebrews 9.13, Hebrews 9.19, Hebrews 9.21, Hebrews 10.22. Hebrews 9.13, for it is the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons in the ashes of a heifer. Hebrews 9.21, in the same way, he sprinkled the blood on both the tent and the vessels. Two different words, two different meanings, two different rituals. So, number seven, why should we be baptized? Why should we be baptized? What's the big deal? Well, Christ was baptized, right? And as our Messiah and our Savior, he was our substitute and example. Matthew 3, 13 through 17, I won't read the whole thing for the interest of time, but Jesus came to be baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus was baptized. Why should we be baptized? I'll give you a second reason. Jesus commanded it. Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded. That's a command. Christ was baptized. He commanded it. He called for us to baptize. His followers, his followers observed it. They practiced baptism. You see that in Acts 2.41, Acts 2.41. So then those who received his word were baptized. That's why we do it. Christ commanded it, his followers observed it, and what did Jesus say in John fourteen fifteen? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And he said, baptize, and so we do. We do it, it's a reenactment of the gospel. Christ was buried, and Christ rose again. We are buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Question number eight has to deal with communion, or the Lord's table. Lots of different names for it. Communion, the Lord's table, the break, breaking of bread, or whether you're a brethren person or a Baptist person or whatever kind of person you are, different names describe the same thing. What is the ordinance of communion? It is a symbol. It is a symbol. It is not. It is not the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It is not that. It doesn't do anything magical, okay? What we practice here is different from what some people call the Eucharist. The Eucharist is a re-sacrificing of Christ again and again and again and again. And we know that in Hebrews it says he paid the once and for all sacrifice. Once we are saved, we do not maintain our salvation by sacraments. That is, that's, we don't do that, okay? We are saved. We are secure in Christ. Where do we find this symbolic nature? We find it in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23 to 26. The Apostle Paul writes to the unruly church at Corinth, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It is a symbol like baptism. Baptism. Some people try to tie this back to the Gospel of John where Jesus said, you know, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, but that was before he was crucified, that was before this ordinance was instituted, okay? It is not the blood and body of Jesus Christ. We do not sacrifice him or re-sacrifice him, putting him to an open shame, as it talks about in the New Testament. We don't do that. It is a celebration, it is a remembrance, it is a demonstration of our anticipation of the return of Christ. The, the, the bread represents his body broken for our sin. The blood represents his blood shed for our sin. And we do this in remembrance of him. It's a remembrance. And we do this until he returns. That's the gospel message that Christ died, that he rose again, and that he is returning. And these ordinances symbolize that. Why do we practice or observe communion? That's question number nine. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Again, we go back to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-four and through 26 because Jesus said so. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It is a reenactment. It is a reminder of the glorious grace of God towards you and me. It is a time of reflection. It is a time of self-examination. And when we do it, we proclaim the gospel just like we proclaim the gospel when we baptize. Christ died for our sin, and Christ rose, and he's going to return. Question number 10, how often? How often do we do the Lord's table? Look at verse 26 in First Corinthians 11. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We do it whenever we can. Some churches do it every Sunday. I was a part of a church. Every Sunday we had communion, Okay. Smaller church, but you know, uh, some do it once a month. Some do it once a quarter. Some do it every six months. When I look at whenever, I look at whenever we can. At a church our size, it's a little more complicated uh, to do it. But uh, so we do it once a month. Once a month, we celebrate the Lord's Passion, and His resurrection, and His return. Now that brings us to question number eleven: How do we practice communion? And what I mean by this is open or closed. There are some groups who say, if you're not a part of our group, our sect, you cannot participate in the Lord's table at our church. That's a closed communion. We here at Hillside practice open communion because it's the Lord's table, not Hillside's table. Okay? Now, I understand why some groups want to be careful. You do want to be careful because those who partake unworthily do themselves great harm. They set a poor example for others as well. And so some uh, Christian groups do what they call fencing the table. The elders stand there, and if they see anybody who doesn't know Christ coming, they sort of say, hey, you want not you just sit down right here? Or if they see somebody who's not walking with God, who's a professing Christian, they might intercept them. What we do is this. We leave it to your conscience. We are not your religious police. We're not, you know, like the Saudi religious police in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, policing everybody. But what we do is we explain that it's for believers only and that you want to make sure you're walking with the Lord, you know, and so we we try to be careful, but we don't we don't stop people, you know. So that brings us to question number 12. So who partakes in communion? Who partakes? I think we understand it's for Christians and Christians only, correct? But what we see here in 1 Corinthians 11:27 to 32 is also a warning It's a word of warning and a word of encouragement. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats the bread and drinks the cup without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself or herself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly... We will not be judged, and when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What's the point there? The point is this. It's not to be taken lightly. It's to be taken seriously. So Christians walking with the Lord in obedience should take the cup. Christians and Christians in right fellowship with God. Okay? So we just want to be careful, which brings us to what I would call children. What about children, number 12? What about children? A lot of times you see parents trying to train their children, raise them up in the the admonition of the Lord, and you'll see them with a very, very young child encouraging them to take communion. And my advice there is this, be careful, be careful. I'm not saying don't do it, I'm not saying do it. Because there are children who come to Christ at four or five, and they come to Christ for real, they understand that they were sinners, and they may understand what the Lord's table is all about. But the typical four or five-year-old doesn't really engage in introspection very often unless it's how to get even with his brother or sister right (coughs) or you know or or the and so you just want to be careful because of verse 29 for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats or drinks judgment on himself i'm not telling you not to let your children partake of communion i'm just saying a make sure they're truly a believer a lot of times we are hung up in decisionism and we say johnny or, or, or or martha you want to go to heaven don't you you love mommy and daddy don't you mommy and daddy love Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Do you want to ask Jesus into your heart? Do you know what I'm talking about? You're not really, you know, so you want to be careful. And then on the other hand, I know people who came to Christ at five and man, it was the real deal. So I just say this, be careful. We talk about children, just be careful. And so those are our 13 questions. So what are your takeaways today? What do I want you to leave here understanding? Well, understand that I can, in fact, preach a 13-point sermon in one setting, but that's just, okay? That's just, just, just so you're, in case you were doubting. But anyway, the other thing is this. The ordinances are established by Christ, not the church, okay? It's not tradition. It's the Bible. They were taught by the apostles. They were practiced by the early church, and there are only two of them. They're just two ordinances. Marriage is not an ordinance. Confession is not an ordinance. Those things are traditions. The ordinances are for believers only. We want to understand that. They're not for everyone. Why? Because they're acts of obedience, which are, and what we know about obedience is, obedience is an act of worship. Everything we say, think, and do is worship. And we worship God faithfully, we we do it obediently. So it's not for everyone. And it's a reenactment, it's a reenactment of the gospel. And it's motivated by a loyal love for God. It doesn't save us. Baptism doesn't wash away sins. Lord's table doesn't do anything magical to us. There's nothing mystical about it. They are just symbols of what God has done for us. And we observe them out of a loyal love, devotion, and dedication to God. And I want you to understand that we do this until Christ returns. This is something that will go on until He returns. So, what do I want you to do today? Number one, if you've misunderstood baptism, I want you to reconsider your position in light of the scriptures here. And regardless of your old tradition or my old tradition, I want you to check and see if your tradition lines up with the testimony of Scripture. And if it doesn't, I'd like you to reconsider your tradition. The second thing I'd like you to do is to joyfully participate in communion. Communion is is both a, a very grave event, but it's a joyful event because it reminds us that Christ has purchased our salvation with his body that was broken for our sin and his blood that was shed on our account. And three... If, like me, you were baptized as an infant, I'd like you to reconsider and consider being baptized as a believer. Because that's really one of the first acts of obedience that a Christian does. He stands before or she stands before a group of people, acknowledges their salvation through Christ, and then their commencement ceremony is their baptismal ceremony. We will have a baptism class in a couple of weeks. Now, I understand that this may make some folks uncomfortable, this is not an easy message to teach or preach. I know that there are some who who encourage kind of a laissez-faire, live and let live kind of thing. There are churches in our denomination that do that, but we don't do that here. We just don't. We try to stick with the Bible, and where it makes us uncomfortable, it makes us uncomfortable. You know, I remember uh, my wife. She was baptized when she was six. She came to Christ when she was twenty-seven. And she was baptized in her 30s. And her parents, good, good Southern Baptists, were like, what, what was that back in our church? Well, I wasn't a believer. I just did it for you. That was a hard thing to do. And it really rocked the family. I'm not trying to make life difficult for you. We're just trying to honor God as sinful, broken human beings to the best of our fallen ability, guided by the word of God, empowered, aided, and abetted by the Holy Spirit. So just think about what you've heard today. If you have any questions, you can write me or call me or come by and see me. In the meantime, uh, let me just remind you of one thing. These things are for believers, and to become a believer, it begins with salvation. That's where you recognize that you're a sinner in need of a savior, and you surrender your soul to Christ. And if you haven't ever done that, let's just start there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Jesus said, sanctify us in truth, Lord. Your Father, your word is truth. Father, we just want to follow your word. We don't want to argue with people or fight with people or look down on people or look up to people, Father. We want to look up to you and serve you and love others. Help us to do so, Father, for the glory of God, for the good of others, and for our own growth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.